Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is Dan Nexon. In this podcast, I'll be conversing with Megan Spooner, who is a young adult fantasy and science fiction writer living in Northern Virginia. Her debut novel, which is also the focus of our discussion, is called Skylark. She is also the co-author of the upcoming young adult science fiction novel, These Broken Stars, which will be published by Disney Hyperion in 2013. Hi, this is Dan Nexon, and uh, today we're talking to Meg Spooner. Uh, Meg, are you there? Yeah, hi. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Why don't you start out by telling us a bit about yourself? Well, uh, I'm a writer living in Northern Virginia. My first book is a young adult fantasy called Skylark, and it just came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, And... I guess I've wanted to be a writer ever since I was very young, uh, since I was four years old, actually. But until I got the idea for Skylark, I never even finished an entire novel because I get very easily distracted by new ideas. And it wasn't until I found one gripping enough for me that I actually realized that I wanted to see it through. So I think uh, hopefully we'll come back a little bit to how um, your more more sort of detailed biographical factors might have influenced the book, but maybe you should tell us a little bit about uh, the world of Skylark. It's a fairly unusual uh, dystopia. Um, what are the key things that our listeners uh, should know about it? Well, the city that Lark grows up in does share a lot of commonalities with more traditional dystopian settings. Uh, her world is is all about fitting in and being adequate. Not brilliant, not extraordinary, but just you know, good enough. And in her world, all any child wants is to become an adult and be a fully functioning, useful member of society, because that is the pinnacle of existence there. Uh, and in creating this world, I chose to have an actual literal rite of passage for children, where they have their magic, which is referred to by the city rather unromantically as the resource. They have that magic harvested and used to power the city. And the, the metaphor there is, was not accidental, the metaphor for the loss of innocence that a child experiences as they cross into adulthood. Uh, but I think that what makes the world of Skylark different from some of the other dystopias uh, that you might look at is that outside of the city, beyond this wall that closes them in, is a world bursting with magic. There's Everything is out there waiting to be discovered. So while the setup is that someone grows up and loses that innocence, loses the magic and that sense of discovery, the beautiful, I guess, or hopeful thing is that it can be regained and it can be found again. 
So just to, let's let's get very mundane here for a second. Uh, although I guess mundane is the wrong world to talk about a, a well wrong word to talk about a well realized uh, SF fantasy setting. Um, so Lark is your main character, and mm-hmm. she's how old is she? She is sixteen. And she lives in a place that's just referred to as the city. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, that city is powered, as you say, by magic, mm-hmm. uh, which is which or the resource, uh, and it is cut off from the rest of the world. Now, what's happened to the rest of the world that's required the city to be hermetically sealed? Well, one of the, one of the fun things about writing science fiction and fantasy is that you can go off on these thought experiments where you can create whole worlds and whole histories that never actually show up in the manuscript. Uh, and, and one of the things that, that happened to me with Skylark is that I actually came up with this former world um, before Lark's world, long before I ever came up with the city. Uh, the, the background is that instead of electricity, this world's technology is powered by magic. And in a way, it's a parallel world to our own. And so a lot of the history is the same, but slightly different. Uh, and in... Lark's world, around this time, around modern times, uh, magic began to be overused by its population, exploited, you know, its resources exploited. And uh, wars broke out because, you know, the resource was dwindling and, you know, people want power. The nature of humanity is that people want power. And uh, the wars led to cataclysmic events that wiped out society. Um, and the city came about because scientists in that world uh, knew what was happening, and they set up this experimental city to sort of hide away from the wars. Instead of participating, they chose to hide. And they put up this wall that shielded it from the magical fallout from these wars. And now a hundred years later, as far as they know, they're all that's left. So in a sense, what you have here is a magical world's version of an experiment in a steady state society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with that comes uh, some of the authoritarianism and the repression that we associate with closely controlled societies. How does that manifest in the city? Can you say the question again? Sure, I may have gotten too much into the you know the sort of social science speak. So no, it's cool. <laughs> well, so I, it's interesting. I hadn't really picked up when I read the novel that this was an experimental city, right? I'd sort of seen it as a, a last ditch attempt to uh, protect humanity by a group of, of scientists. It, or, I mean, it definitely is that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there were several last ditch efforts mm-hmm. um, across the continent. Mm-hmm. Or and this, sorry. Oh no, go on. I'm sorry. Uh, and this is just the one that we happen to be focusing on right. uh, because it's the one where our character lives. Right. And as you call them, uh, you know, natural philosophers. And, and mm-hmm. so they set up this society or this small city that's designed to maximally conserve the resource uh, and allow humanity to persist. But over time, they become a, kind of an aristocratic um, or oligarchic class that yeah. uh, tightly controls uh, the activities of their of the inhabitants of the city, and part of that is because they you know obviously comes out of a, an impulse to conserve resources, but there 's a real sense that it 's also become corrupted over time so mm-hmm. I was curious about kind of the the politics of the city if you could tell us a little bit about about that 
Well, the basis of it comes from the old saying that power corrupts. And in Skylark, it's both metaphorical power and literal power. Uh, the Institute, uh, which is the, the word basically for the government, uh, that started out as being full of scientists or architects, as they're called in the book, um, but is now basically just the ruling body of the city. Uh, they have the power in the sense that they rule the city, but they also have the power in the sense of magical power. They strip it from the citizenry as they become adults and, and use it for their own purposes. Um, of course, their purposes are, in theory, noble. They're protecting uh, society. They're keeping the wall up. They're keeping out all of the potentially deadly things that, that lie beyond the wall. But there is a question of at what point do the ends stop justifying the means? Uh, I, I dislike villains who are villainous for villainry's sake. Um, I always like people who have good intentions uh, and, and evil that is a matter of degrees. I like choices that, that are potentially the wrong choices, potentially the bad choices, but choices. And that's an impulse, I think, that comes across really clearly and very effectively in the book. Um, Lark is very uh, self-reflective about the difficulty of choices. And so in, in, in a sense, there are moments, I think, that you, you do really well when it's clear that there is no good choice for her. Somebody has to get hurt, um, even though she sees very – I think she sees and she's very explicit that most of the people who are – being pitted against one another, none of them are evil or necessarily mm-hmm. deserving of their fate. So I, I thought that was something that, that you did very effectively. I know it's an important kind of theme to uh, to work through, uh, particularly in, in, in young adult fiction. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned um, you mentioned you've mentioned on your website and a couple other places that I've looked at that Skylark started out uh, set in a post-apocalyptic Washington D.C. Uh, and it struck me as we follow, and I don't think this would give too much away, you know, that Lark eventually leaves the city right. and has to go out into the, the wasteland. Um, it, it felt like she was traveling through, uh, you know, out of the core of D.C., maybe out of the National Mall, across the bridge, into an area that looked like it could be northern Virginia. Did you re- was that deliberate? Did you retain elements of that geography? Yeah, actually, it's it's funny. You can tell that you're a D.C. native because you recognize the mall. Um but yeah, except for four years of college in New York and a couple of years living overseas in Australia, I've lived my whole life right outside Washington, D.C. And as soon as I realized that I wanted the totalitarian government of Lark City to be all about knowledge and originally about science, uh, I knew that I wanted it to correlate with the Smithsonian Institute in D.C., Um, But where our Smithsonian is all about discovery and the sharing of human knowledge, and in Lark's world, it's the opposite. Her institute is holding all history and science in trust, so to speak, protecting it, keeping it away from its citizens on the pretense that society is still recovering from the wars and isn't ready for this kind of knowledge. So, yeah, the city is D.C., uh, the wilderness that... Lark finds herself in at the start of Act Two is Northern Virginia. The suburbs that she encounters, the parks, eventually the the mountains, the Shenandoahs, uh, and many of the places she travels to are based on real places I've been, but often just changed slightly to reflect 
the parallel nature of, of her world to ours. So I'd like to hear more about the main character, um, uh, whose name, as we've mentioned, is Lark. Uh, how, how did you come up with her? How do you imagine her? Well, uh, like many dystopian heroes and heroines, Lark doesn't start out thinking that there's anything wrong with her world. She's, you know, her greatest aspiration is just to fit in in this society. Uh, but as you learn through the beginning of the book, that's not possible for her. And so eventually she chooses freedom over enslavement. And as we've said, she flees beyond the wall and goes into the wilderness. And all of that starts to change. And I wanted her to feel like a normal teenage girl. I love strong heroines, but I don't think that strength is entirely in your muscles or in your magic. Uh, Lark's strength at the risk of sounding utterly cheesy, Lark's strength is strength of character. She is woefully unprepared for what waits for her on the other side of the wall, but she goes anyway. She's never seen the sky, only the inside of her city's dome, so when she finally does see it, she's afraid of it. She's got aronophobia to the point of breakdown. Uh, she has all these fears and inadequacies that she has to battle almost entirely on her own, which for me was a challenge to write because the temptation is to just make her instantly strong and awesome because strong characters are inherently likable. But I wanted Lark's strength to be a gradual thing. She learns, she adapts, she gets smarter, she learns how to survive she becomes a force in her own right. And I think that that makes her eventual independence and strength that much more satisfying. So did you have any sources, um, literary, real world people you modeled her after or what have you, um, in mind when you developed her? Um, well, there are, there are a million examples of, of strong heroines that come to mind. Like, Buffy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Ripley from the Alien franchise. But I don't think that there are as many examples of quieter strength, um, probably because they're quieter. <laughs> so I didn't really base that part of Lark on anything. Um, a lot of authors, I think, create their stories and characters while thinking about what their audience would want. But I have to admit that my audience is basically myself. Uh, I write the things that I would like to read the things that I would have gobbled up when I was a teenager. Uh, I think that the teen experience is universal enough that the things that fascinated me as a teenager are the same things that are going to fascinate other teens. And to be honest, things that still hang me up today, uh, identity is a big issue for me and for other people. I'm, I'm in my twenties now uh, and I, it's still an issue for me. And I think Many people are still trying to figure out who they are well into their 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, for the rest of their lives. Everyone continues to change. So I think that journeys of discovery, stories that, that focus on a character's process of becoming who they're meant to be, those will always be universal. So I found it particularly interesting how you put a new twist on a lot of the, the staples of post-apocalyptic and young adult genre work. And you've already mentioned in some detail how magic uh, becomes a kind of stand-in for all sorts of resource consumption uh, and in that this is a world that has fallen apart because its humanity has eroded the caring capacity provided by magic. Mm -hmm. Magic also serves some interesting other some other interesting 
you know, allegorical or metaphorical uses uh, as kind of the, the life force writ large uh, that people have. Uh, and, you know, I don't think, again, it's giving away too much that when she, she goes out into this wasteland and discovers a world in which uh, magic has really been depleted, that that world is twisted and frightening and barren in the way that you would normally uh, see associated with, say, uh, 50s or 60s era post-apocalyptic yeah. nuclear war fantasy, right, where instead of radiation, you even use the term fallout. It's the yeah. absence of magic that twists the world and renders it lifeless uh, in mm-hmm. a lot of places. Uh, are there other uh, kinds of staples that you were deliberately playing with or other things that we should be aware of that um, had this kind of uh, interesting uh, spin on them uh, that we would see otherwise, you know, that, that draw on elements from, from the genres you're playing with? Um, yeah, other themes. It's, it's funny. When I'm writing, I never think about themes. I'm, I'm just telling a story. The themes tend to come out after the fact, and usually they're pinpointed by other people. Uh, my critique partner, my agent, my editor, and they're constantly going, I love how you incorporated the X theme here. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, but I think that actually happens to writers a lot. Um, so other themes, I think, I think violence is definitely uh, something that I look at in Skylark because there are aspects of horror in here as well. And Lark's home city is utterly lacking in violence. Even the worst possible punishment, which is referred to as adjustment, is simply a voluntary voluntary departure from the city. It's It's a very bloodless and dispassionate ceremony. But once she crosses the wall, everything is life or death. Kill or be killed. Which is actually something that comes up, a point of contention between Lark and one of the other characters, Orin, uh, who is a, a wild boy that she meets in the wilderness. So while the world beyond the wall is violent and brutal, and there's no question about that, there's also beauty to be found there that could never exist in the colorless environment within the wall. Which is not to say that violence is beautiful. I don't want to romanticize pain or brutality, but it's the whole idea that you can't have the good without the bad. Um, And this really connects with one of my favorite books of all time, which is The Giver by Lois Lowry. I love that book. I read it probably twice a year, and, and every time I read it, I get something new from it. But the main character in that book faces a choice between a life without pain, without grief, without suffering of any kind, but it's also a life without color, without art, without music. It's a life without love. And the point is that to have those things, you have to have the suffering too. And I think that that's something that is definitely present in Skylark. It's interesting as a, as a, political scientist, I had read the argument it's principally one in which the city's attitude is sort of Habesian, right? That if you want to, that because the state of nature or the world outside the wall is so harsh, uh, the only option is a kind of, is, is, is an authoritarian sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Absolute sovereignty. Uh, and that um, one of the things that Lark is doing as she leaves the, uh, the community uh, discovers other communities, meets other people, other perspectives that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is looking, you know, that is, is a kind of search for, for an alternative, right? Um, 
But I guess one of the things about strong uh, literature, whether it's in the the young adult or the the literary fiction mode, which I have air quotes around, uh, (laughs) is that it it has multiple readings uh, in ways that it can speak to audiences with different audiences with the same sort of things. Uh, You you mentioned that this is a fairly violent world out there, and, and you really don't pull any punches when it comes to showing just how dark and twisted uh, the world outside, well, not only the world outside the wall, but the world within the wall. Um, uh, I love the particular way that you have these pockets of magic that she encounters. And when you go into them, there are these, they really kind of create all at the same time, the sense of beauty, but also sadness and often danger. Um, and there's something, if you'll excuse me, magical about that. Uh, and it gets at a lot of the, you know, sort of what we think of when we think about magic, but I'm curious where, uh, some of those images came from these these moments that have all of these kind of mixed emotions and mixed thematics and and mixed you know I, I don't know what the term I'm looking for but have the sense of that they can be both beautiful and sad and dangerous at the same time where where those images came from well I think that the the magical pockets I really wanted to give glimpses of what a world with magic looked like because as you were saying the the world beyond the wall is this barren wasteland um twisted by the the depletion of magic and i wanted lark to have glimpses of what a world with magic would look like uh you know what it might have been like before but more importantly what it might be like again um and this is actually one of those things I don't expect every reader to pick up on. There's a lot of things that you put into your books that are there in the background, but not necessarily meant to be seen or digested consciously. Of course, there's a lot that you don't put in that people get out of it anyway. But I think that's the beautiful thing about storytelling is that while no two people can tell the same story the same way, it's also true that no two people can hear the same story the same way. But back to the pockets, the the linking factor between the pockets of magic is time, actually. In one of the pockets, time has sped up dramatically so that Lark enters a world in which nature has reclaimed the ruins she's walking through. The trees have taken over. In another pocket, time has been all but suspended to the point where there's almost an echo, a imprint or memory of the last days of the family that lived there replaying over and over in an endless loop in another pocket. It's always summer. It's the summer Lake. Uh, and I, I love time and, you know, don't be surprised if someday I write a time travel series, but I love time as a vehicle for storytelling. Uh, and that's really where the pockets came from. They're all reflections of time and what time does to the world. And, of course, the city itself is a pocket uh, whose yeah. time operates in rather different rhythms than any of the other timescapes that uh, timescapes that Lark goes through. That's really cool. I, I actually had not picked up on that, but now I see it very clearly. Yeah, and the, the city, there's a lot of refer- references to clockwork uh, because the machinery that operates on magic is clockwork, but there's also a sense of everything ordered, everything in its time, everything, you know, ticking over every second, doing everything exactly as it should be, uh, breaking time down into these bite-sized manageable pieces. And then when Lark goes out into the world and, and finds these pockets of magic, time has just exploded. 
One of the other kind of, you know, I asked you earlier, um, and I think I asked you in such a long-winded way that it threw you, but I asked you about, you know, other ways that you were kind of putting a, a unique spin on tropes that appear in the various genres you're working with. And one of the really, the cool images we have here that really begin, you know, we get at the very beginning is the, are these pixies, right? These mm, yeah. mechanical, uh, these mechanical flying clockwork entities that are mm-hmm. the eyes and ears of the city and which run off of, you know, little crystals of magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I hope we're not giving too much away, but one of those pixies winds up traveling as a kind of ambiguous uh, companion uh, with Lark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, that's such a, st- the, the, that's such a striking image, right? Um, the, the pixies uh, and the, the pixie is a kind of mechanical and yet magical entity. Um, was that something that you kind of started with that developed as you went along with the story? Um, you know, yeah, the, the pixies were something that I came up with very early as just a cool thing that I thought of and wanted to use. And I didn't really have a good place to put them. So they were kind of floating around in the back of my mind as I started writing and it was shortly after Lark left the city and went out into the wilderness that I realized I had a problem because I had set up this story in which my character was going to be alone for pretty much the entire story. And I did not want to have, I, I wanted her to be able to speak. I wanted her dialogue to be external as well as internal. And so I knew I needed to give her a companion. And because the character of Lark is really all about morality and choice and making decisions and, you know, black and white and the gradations of gray in between. I thought that the perfect foil for her would be a machine that has no morality. It's only morality, if you want to call it that, is its programming. And what makes it unique is that it has been programmed to learn. And so it begins to develop perhaps its own morality. And that was, it's funny because I put Nyx, which is the name of this pixie, I put Nyx in there as a last ditch effort to give Lark someone to talk to. And it ended up becoming one of my favorite characters because it's the perfect way uh, to have Lark talk through all of her choices. It makes for the perfect foil for her. And, and I do like the combination of machinery and magic. Magic as this sort of wild, by nature, force, untamable, raw energy being twisted and pinned to these little machines and forced to do the city's bidding. Uh, I really liked that tension. What also gives her a, a, a familiar, right? In the, yeah. The old, yeah. Uh, it, he, you know, Nix is her animal companion, mm-hmm. but he's not an animal and at times not even a very good companion um but yeah you know it's interesting because uh, you know as i've tried to prep more and more for getting back into science fiction and fantasy i've been reading an increasing amount of writing about producing fantasy uh and one of the things of course that you have in a genre that's become increasingly mature is that there is a lot of writing about it mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things that i keep on seeing is the notion that what magic has become in fantasy is essentially an energy source, right? Mm-hmm. That human beings can draw on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've made that very literal 
uh, yeah. in this particular uh, novel. But I, I wonder in some ways whether the that view of magic and the view of magic that you have here, and this isn't a criticism, it's more of a kind of opportunity. I, I want to mm-hmm. kind of get your, your views on this. It's a very hyper-rationalized way of thinking about magic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost the antithesis of magic as a kind of um, enchant, as a force of enchantment and a force of uh, kind of interrational, uh, other human, incomprehensible, Right. Uh, form of power, the way that um, a lot of the romantic, ro- ro- not romance, romantic, but romance literature and folkloric right. sources that fantasy builds upon, uh, you know, would have conceptualized it. Um, uh, I mean, do you think that 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 uh, we're losing anything when we when we think about magic in that way, or is there a way that that in particular you want to kind of draw on different elements of the way that we think about magic for these stories? I absolutely think that we're losing something, and and that's, for me at least, part of the story. Uh, The Institute has, in the very, they don't even call it magic, they call it the resource. Uh, And Lark has this remembered conversation with her brother who went missing years ago, where he calls it magic and she is shocked because you're not allowed to call it that. And he says, you know, that's what it is. They, they tried to, they try to call it something else, but you should always call it what it is. And a lot of what happens in Skylark and especially what happens in the next two books in the series is the liberation of magic from this very strict and rigid uh, framework that, that people have been using it in, in her city the way people have been using it and it's sort of the she's sort of reclaiming magic as a wild untamable thing uh throughout the series which for me is important because it's very much for me the the reclamation of childhood um you stop you know the the metaphor is that you stop believing in magic when you grow up and I think that this story is about Lark discovering that magic is very much alive. Oh, excellent. So in a sense, you've, you've, uh, I am simply falling prey to the uh, account <laughs> of magic that Lark has been given by the, uh, the Institute. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so there's been a, I wanted to take us in a little bit of a different direction. Okay. And we've mentioned how, how dark, uh, you know, this is a, a book that I think like many of the, the best young adult fantasy is littered with both moments of beauty and moments of darkness. And as I've said, one of the things I I like so much about it is that those are not radically separated in time and space. They're often at the same moment, uh, which I, I found very powerful. Um, but there's been a lot of discussion lately. I mean, there was that, I'm sure everybody's talking about that New <laughs> York Street. Times thing or Wall Street oh, Journal it? thing. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal, yeah. yeah everybody's doing this now, right? About, yeah. oh my God, young adult fantasy and science fiction. It's so dark and dystopian and uh. are they robbing children of their childhoods? And so given the nature of this book, I think you've opened yourself up to being asked <laughs> what you think about that. Yeah, well, the thing is, and... In a way, it's kind of throwing down my gauntlet, so I know I'm in for it. Uh, and the truth is that I could talk for hours about this topic. I'll try not to, but uh, it is it is one that I feel very strongly about. Uh, I, I strongly believe that, that children's literature and, yes, young adult literature specifically should not be censored or dumbed down or lightened up in any way 
for one thing, I believe that children self-censor. I mean, I read uh, Anne McCaffrey's Pern books when I was, I think, eight. And I don't mean her Harper Hall series for younger readers. I mean, like, the full Dragon Rider series. And those books are chock full of sex all over the place. But I had no idea. When I reread them as a teenager, I was just like, I do not remember this happening. <laughs> because when I was eight, I wasn't ready to read about sex, and I just skipped over it. I mean, I didn't know what was going on. It wasn't until I was older that I realized that I skipped over those parts. Uh, and, you know, I don't have children myself, so I'm not an expert. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who might argue with me. But I think it is undeniable that children are getting older faster with 24-7 access to media of all kinds, you know, TV, movies, the Internet. Uh, and I think that the natural instinct is to want to try and shelter them and keep them young as long as possible. But, you know, there's the old argument that if they don't read about these topics in books, they're going to see them in movies, they're going to hear about sex, and they're going to hear language in school. Uh, you can't keep your kids in a bubble. And I think that books are important. I think dialogue is good. I think conversation is good. I think that parents shouldn't be frightened when their kids come to them with a question from something they read in a book. I think it's a gift. It, it lets you talk to them about the issues. It lets you educate them rather than leaving them to come into this adult world, having to navigate it completely on their own. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I, I hear those complaints, and I think back to what I read in school in, in seventh and eighth grade, let alone I had the same experience as you did reading. Yeah. You know, you get sucked in by, by dragon song, dragon. singer, and drums, and before you know it, you're reading books that are, you know, rather Way more of, mature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your parents have no idea. Um, yeah. So. My but, parents actually, my parents gave me those books. Mm -hmm. um, so my parents, I don't know if they forgot that there was sex in there or if they just didn't care. But Or if they knew that I wasn't going to read them. But, I mean, my father read science fiction when he was a child. Um, you know, I come from a long line of readers. And my parents were just never the kind of parents to tell me I couldn't read something. So, um, but any, anyway, it's, it's interesting. I'm now having a, a, this, this, this running dialogue with my wife about when to expose my eight-year-old daughter to different mm -hmm. works. And we've sort of got a line of things. And, but I think really it depends on, I mean, I think as a parent, what you learn is it depends on your kid. Yeah. So, you know, my daughter can handle some very mature stuff, but certain kinds of things set her off. But, mm -hmm. uh, but it is funny because I think back to the, 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 Things I read in school as a sixth, seventh, and eighth grader, right? So yeah. uh, things like the lottery and a separate piece, and these are not Lord of the flies. Yes, these are not exactly uh, <laughs> uh, these are not exactly uh, light, shiny, happy uh, no. works. So maybe there's a bit of, of hypocrisy or just attempts yeah. to generate a, a media storyline out of you know the Hunger Games or something going on there. Um, well, if I if I can interrupt for just a second, I. I think that the hypocrisy comes from literary versus commercial. I think when it's literature, and I'm using the same air, qu air quotes that you used earlier, when it's literature, it's okay. When it's commercial, it's trashy. Uh, and I think that there is a weird divide there that doesn't make a lot of sense, but definitely seems to exist anyway. Well, I think those things are are lazy shorthands for 
what really is a, a work by work determination, which is mm -hmm. whether violence, uh, sex, uh, dark themes, not that sex is a dark theme, but things that we might think are on the edge of appropriateness for the age group, whether those things are, are deployed in a way that's thoughtful uh, and has substance or whether they're deployed for sort of cheap, you know, yeah, cheap thrills. Definitely. And I think that, that rather than ex ante say, this is literature, this is commercial, or this is genre work and this is literary work. Uh, and if obviously then if it's, if it's really genre work, you know, it's become literary based on the powers of the, the really mm -hmm. the yeah. decision has to be made based on the individual uh, individual books and individual works and a lot of the things that people are attacking now for being too dark and I hope that Skylark is not attacked for being too dark <laughs> but I think I would put Skylark in this in this um, in this category use the that darkness to make certain arguments or to get their yep. readers to think about moral ambiguity to get their leaders to think about um, as you said you know if they are going to have moments of, of great beauty and light that also requires, uh, you know, a dark underside to it. So, yeah. you know, I, 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 but that anyway, people are here to listen to, to you, not to me. So, uh, um, so that does, does naturally segue into, uh, one of the other questions I want to ask you, which is, you know, what particular challenges and opportunities, uh, do you face right now being somebody who's, who's writing young adult fiction? Um, well, I think specifically with science fiction and fantasy, young adult fiction, world building actually ends up being a huge challenge. Uh, with adult literature, you get more room for explanation. Readers will stick with you longer, give you some breathing room, let you stop and explain the world you've created. With young adult, you have to jump into the story and stay in the story and keep it paced within an inch of its life. You don't get to deviate for a chapter and give the reader a history of the world. You don't get to stop for a chapter and talk about Tom Bombadil. You have to balance the action with imparting nuggets of world building almost without anyone noticing. And I think that that is probably one of the hardest things about when you're writing both young adult and science fiction fantasy is you don't get to go off on these well, flights of fancy, uh, you have to stay very grounded. Um, so that's definitely a challenge. Um, but other than that, for me, it's not terribly a challenge to write young adult fiction. Uh, young adult fiction is what I like to read. Uh, and for me, my memories of reading as a child, I was reading like a teenager, you know, I was, absolutely absorbed in the books that I was reading. I was completely transported. No one reads a book the way a child reads a book. And for me, that's the way I want people to read my books. I want them to pick them up and resurface six hours later and wonder where the time went. <laughs> uh, and so for me, there was never a question. I always wanted to write books for teens. That's interesting. Um, one of the things that I thought might pose a bit of an issue uh, is that uh, no matter how much we, we, we laud or talk about, you know, kind of underestimating the capabilities of young adult readers uh, or of, 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 of children readers, mm -hmm. um, one of the, the things that is true about children and young adults is that no matter how smart or voracious or willing to tackle difficult books they are, their capacity for abstract thought is all over the place. Mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that I would have thought 
would have presented the challenge is how do you write a book that is capable of both uh, entrancing the kids who are capable of thinking very abstractly at a young age, but also uh, speaking to those kids or children who do not who who have everything else but just haven't developed all of the abstract thinking capabilities such that they need things spelled out more for them than that first category would. Is that something that you consciously think about when you write this kind of work? Uh, well, I mentioned earlier that the the themes tend to come in later, and I think that that plays a role here because ultimately when I start writing, I'm setting out to tell a good story, um, That and that's all, really. I mean, that's my highest goal is to tell a good story. Uh, and I think that there are some books out there that treat children's literature, and I'm including, when I say children's literature, I'm including YA literature, that treat children's literature as a platform um, to try to get kids thinking about certain issues. And I feel like that's got to be at least secondary to the story, if, if not, you know, way down the list of priorities. Because if you write a good story, kids are going to think about it. I mean, that's just, just the way it is. And you look at uh, The Hunger Games, which is so popular right now, that's story without any of its themes, just the story itself is riveting. Um, I read that book in one sitting and, and I don't normally do that anymore. I don't have the time to do that anymore. But, um, I think that you can't help, but think about it when you're addicted to a story, you can't help, but go deeper. You can't help, but want to spend time with it. You know, you're, you're doing something else in your day and you start thinking about that book. Uh, and I think, that in terms of appealing to a broad audience of both children who, who, who do tend toward introspection and those who don't, I think the key is layering. Um, you have to have that good story there in place, and then you can add the other things. You can highlight the other things that come up as you're writing the story, um, but you have to make sure that the story functions on its own without those other aspects. Well, you mentioned books that make you, uh, that, you know, you, you dive into and you resurface and you wonder where the time went. And Skylark was definitely one of those books for me. I started <laughs> oh, it and, uh, re- you know, too late at night uh, and went to bed uh, uh, way too late. Um, <laughs> so I enjoyed it immensely. And I was wondering, uh, what's next? I know that it sounds like this is the first book in a trilogy. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the next book from me that will come out is, is Skylark's sequel, which is called Shadow Lark. Uh, and that comes out of August next year. And then there will be a third book that comes out a year after that. Um, but I also have a, another upcoming series that come, the first book comes out next year after Shadow Lark. It comes out next year in November. And that the first in that series, it's a science fiction series, uh, the first book called These Broken Stars. Uh, and they're both the start of trilogies. So that's, you know, counting Skylark, that's six books, um, which is a lot. Uh, you know, there was a period of time. I, I went from being a zero, nothing published ever writer to having six books sold in the span of six months. And, you know, the past couple of years have been a long period of adjustment to that. Uh, I've never been 
I've never been contracted to write certain things before. So that's been a struggle. I know I said earlier that I, I tend to get distracted by the shiny new ideas very easily. And, uh, you know, bringing myself down to focus on one thing, I think has been really, uh, an, an intense learning experience for me. Um, so that will be the next six books that come out for, or five books after Skylark that come out. But I, I do have another project in the works in my heart. I have a sort of wild affection for fairy tales and mythology classics. Uh, and there's a book that I've been working on for a few years in my spare time you know, all that spare time that I have, uh, that is a Beauty and the Beast retelling set in medieval Russia, blended with the fairy tale of Yvonne and the Firebird. It's sort of an interweaving of those two stories. And uh, I'd love to see that, you know, tentatively for 2015 when Skylark is over and the last book of These Broken Stars will be coming out. But, uh, you know, that's so far ahead. And it's amazing how little time you have once the books start coming out. I had no idea. I kind of thought that authors were kind of being babies about how busy they were. (laughs) I don't know. I thought they were exaggerating. Um, but so I don't know my, my wild fairy tale may have to stay the book of my heart for a little while longer. Well, this sounds like a very exciting time for you. Uh, And I'm glad that despite how busy you are, you've uh, agreed to, you, you know, you agreed to come on with us and, and share your time uh, with our oh, listeners. I had a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, so thanks so much uh, for being on the program. Thank you. And all the best. Thanks. Right, bye. This episode of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy was recorded August 16th, 2012 and featured Megan Spinner. <laughs>